theme for the afternoon talk is Noble Truth, Noble Silence. It is rather important to recognize the very fresh uh, view or perception and understanding that the Buddha had in sharing and offering and giving Dharma teachings. And at the time, two and a half thousand years ago in uh, India, it sent shockwaves through the conventions of religion. And the reason for this is that the Buddha questioned again and again all beliefs and all re religious, scientific or philosophical beliefs. And particularly in the religious field where beliefs, as they stu still do in India, run riot everywhere. He put out a very strong message in the heart and core of the teachings, which were valid then and are valid today. Do not be impressed with something because it has a long tradition. This did not please the traditionalists. Do not be impressed simply because many people follow something. Do not be impressed because people, as it were, swear by a particular book or a religious authority or acting in the name of God or following a guru and in just the space of a few comments it was a questioning and an encouragement not to be impressed with religion period two and a half thousand years have gone by and sadly, we have Buddhism. What to do? He then made the shift. And this shift was taking the emphasis of the external factors, book, guru, God, tradition, lineage, rituals, ceremonies, sacrifices, methods, forms, ceremonies, took all the emphasis off that and the encouragement was, and still is, ehipasiko opanayiko pachatam vedita bovinyuti meaning to see for oneself through one's own experience to see through one's own experience what matters, what contributes to wisdom and insight and realization, and to trust in that. 
significant shift. And therefore, there wasn't any wish nor intention to establish a religion, nor was there any wish nor or intention to establish a philosophy, nor was there any particular wish to establish a way of life as the primary objective. The primary intention was to contribute to waking up, to live a realized life in which the so-called problems of life, so-called problems of life, have ceased to be a problem. Period. That was the emphasis at the beginning, in the middle and in the end. To look at the issues of life which are difficult, explore them, go deeply into them, transform them. This then got summarised, and it's well worth our reflection, both here and in daily life, in the area of what is called the Four Noble Truths. I referred to this the other day. And he said, with each of the truths, this is where the reflection comes in, that there is a relationship to each one. So, with the first, suffering, unhappiness, problems, difficulty, stress, angst, unsatisfactoriness, all that we put into this word, do. And when asked what it was, he replied in the space of a few lines, very simple, not getting what we want. This becomes a problem. Losing what we have, being separated from who and what we love, and clinging on to any feature of body and mind. This generates dukkha, problematic life. And the relationship to this, first one, is to question and to ask, what is it, when there is some unresolved issue, what is it, he asks, that there is to be understood? So the first noble truth, the emphasis, when there's some issue in our life unresolved, we're not clear, we're giving ourselves or another a hard time, or both. What is it that is to be understood? And from that comes the interest, the reflection and the inquiry. Sometimes we're so caught up in something, really troubling and bothering our mind, at the time, we're just going, as it were, round and round in circles. And we might be blaming ourselves, or finding fault with another, or feeling very distressed and unhappy about something. And yet, despite all that's going on, it's still keeping the reflection alive. What is it that there is, what is it here to be understood? When it came to the second truth of desire, and rather important here to understand what is meant by desire, has a different meaning in the Pali, a little bit to the English. 
in the Pali, the word tanha, it means wanting, expecting, placing pressure on ourselves to get, being dependent on the result, craving, rushing, the mind which must have. All of this is problematic mind. And peace of mind is then dependent on the outcome. So, sometimes in some situations where we are experiencing the wanting mind in its unhealthy, unsatisfactory aspect, the question of the relationship to it is very simple. What is it that there is to be let go of? Simple. Is there the capacity to let go? Is there the capacity to drop? Sometimes it's clear when you and I pick up a hot coal we don't have a debate with ourselves whether we're going to let it go or not. Wow, it burns, we drop it. It's a pity we don't have that about all the other things which cause us a problem. So, there is a certain sequence of events that is unfolding. And that sequence of events means that sometimes we have ignored the sequence. We haven't noticed it. There's been some kind of contact that's generated some kind of feeling. The feeling has generated some kind of desire. Some kind of desire has then generated some kind of clinging, holding on to. And the second noble truth and the relationship to it is to look at and really explore and reflect on this sequence. What are situations of my life which are giving difficulty? I have a contact with them. The contact has produced some kind of feeling. The feeling has produced some kind of desire. The desire has produced some kind of, some kind of clinging. And it can be pleasant or unpleasant or somewhere in between. Many a pleasant feeling has arisen contact with something just with an impression. I'd really like some chocolate. Contact, pleasant feeling, desire, must have. Lovely to eat chocolate. But, as someone was saying to me just uh, a few weeks ago, just about, it's not that I like chocolate. Every time I'm experiencing some ha unhappiness, I'm eating it by the bar. Nothing much to do with the taste of chocolate. How easy it is that something is unresolved, can't work with it, we can't let it go. How easy it is we want to rush to something away from it which is pleasant. Chocolate. It can be anything. Contact, feeling, wanting, holding on to.
and we will not be able to experience or notice in our life any kind of problematic life without seeing the sequence in it. It's not possible. It's an extraordinary thing. And we notice with ourselves, with this uh, flow and the sequence, that some situations we have resolved. I'm sure if you and I look back over our life, we think, God, I remember when, I don't know if people as they get older do this more often, maybe. <laughs> I can think of some people I know do. I remember when. And then one goes back over that period of time, whatever it may have been. And, this is important, one knows that one's never going to repeat it again. One just knows. Years ago, I, I referred to smoking the other day. And you can't say absolutely. And no, I'm never going to have another cigarette. Just doesn't interest. And then I've seen the sequence of events before, given it attention, reflected on it. One of one's lifelong wishes is to see the bankruptcy of tobacco companies and see there's no good in tobacco either for the individual, for the earth, for people, for anybody. And one says, I don't want to be part of that. Finished. It's over. So what was problematic, habit, addiction, whatever, ceases to be so. One knows, that's it, it's finished. One knows. Dharma teachings of the third, of the third noble truth is that same knowing, but at a much more full and expansive level. Third noble truth is the resolution of suffering, the re resolution of problem, the resolution of a difficulty, the resolution, the ending of a habit. The word nirvana, and it's... Uh, Makeup of the word nirvana without fire, gone cool. So, things which burnt us up, as it were, things which we used to really burn up about, get heated, get fired up about, or whatever, some areas of life we see now we've resolved, we're really clear about it. And there is a knowing of that, and there is a knowing that we won't fall back into history. First noble truth, to be understood. Second noble truth, to see what there is to be let go of in this sequence. Third noble truth, to be realised, to be known. So as I say, in some conventional ordinary areas, we know this is complete, this is finished, there is no going back to it. We want that sense of, that sense of resolution to be so deeply established that we can say, for the most part, the problems of life are finished, are over with. And the fourth one is the one of uh, uh, the way. 
And the relationship to the way is that which is to be developed. To really cultivate a way, a way of being in life which is interested in the whole dynamic of life, exploring it well and deeply. And therefore, there isn't avoidance in our life, there isn't denial, there is engagement, there is intimacy of exploration of life. And through that, quite naturally, you and I will uncover difficult areas. And I think one of the changes for people of practice and in our and inquiry and reflection that the cha- one of the changes that goes on inside of ourselves is when difficulties come, whatever they might be, oh my goodness, life can provide endless numbers of them, expected and unexpected. It's not that there is a kind of welcoming ac- attitude. Oh, great! Another problem to work with. <laughs> I, I know, wouldn't be quite so optimistic in that light. But there is a sense inside of oneself, born out of confidence, born out of a certain knowing that one can resolve issues, that whatever it is, is worth exploring. Something that is difficult, troublesome, whatever it might be, health, relationships, money, the future, one's practice, the Dharma, friends, life, whatever it is, that is manifesting itself in our life, it is worth exploring. There is an intention there that one doesn't want to avoid anything with life. Anything. Let it come. Let us face with it. I've said a few times to friends, I hope I don't die in bed in my sleep. I'll be furious. I'm going to, body's going to go, one's going to die. I want to die with my eyes open. I want to be there, mindful and alert, and, and, and hopefully, and uh, in touch with the last outbreath. I don't want the insult of dying in my sleep. I want to live one's life, I want to see the very end of it, hopefully, possibly, but who knows? There's no guarantee. Just, life is, does its thing. So it never takes any notice of our best wishes. <laughs> Never did and never will. The very fact I say I don't want to die in my sleep is probably <laughs> certain that I will. So sometimes in the relationship to life, in the in the looking looking into life, that every situation that as we move through things, we move through and sometimes things just come out. Totally unexpected. Unplanned, unwelcome, unwanted, unthought about, uninvited, bang, right in our face. We just don't know in the vulnerability of life from one day to the next. It's more problematic to deal with difficulties 
if we've got a strong desire for something else. Many situations in our life where there is some expression of difficulties, the difficulty is increased by the wanting to do something else. Talking Nicole's ex-good man lying there in the hospital bed. We say, oh God, it's Jesus, it's not very nice because the poor man got to lie in there for the next two or three months as many other you know, people in hospital. Not an easy thing to accept, not an easy thing to be patient, not an easy thing to be with the process of things. We would all agree with that. What will make it difficult is one thing only. Desire not to be in bed. That makes it difficult. The bigger the desire, the bigger the conflict. The bigger the desire, the bigger the resistance. And it isn't easy. Lots of situations, wherever there is an ending, in this case, the ending of the opportunity to walk, and be outdoors, and walk around, and hang out, and be with friends, etc. Whenever there is the ending of an, op- of an event in life, Though the ending of the event, it's not easy, it's not comfortable for the body. It could be the Buddha of the Buddhas lying in the Dusseldorf hospital. still going to be painful for the body. But it's the practice of letting go of the wanting. We just had the DFP meeting a few weeks ago down the facilitators programme. And in the um, Christian tradition, there is a word, hope. Very used a lot, those of you who have a Christian upbringing, have hope. It's regarded as a great thing, as a great virtue. So I asked a couple of our Pali wallers, good friends, in the Pali language, that's the language that the Buddha spoke, is there a word, hope? And so they kindly went to their Pali dictionaries and checked out with the dictionaries. And hope, in English, the feeling I get is a kind of positive feeling that one wants something for the future and one hopes and wishes and would like it to turn out all right. This is the feeling of hope, that everything that it would turn out good. This is hope. There's no such word in the Pali. No such word. And the nearest to it is to want something for the future, but it may not turn out that way. (laughs) 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 That's a a phenomenon. To want something for the future, but it may not turn out that way. This is more precise. And I was asked in an inquiry... And this isn't easy. I was asked in an inquiry, a person was experiencing 
life-threatening illness, cancer in this case. And just a few months ago in the rainforest in Australia, just listening to a few minutes of it yesterday, a good friend of ours, Dharma teacher, uh, been dealing with abdominal cancer for four years now, with several operations and describing what he's been going through. So one other person came for up for inquiry with cancer. Talking about cancer, so I'm sorry. The person's a psychologist, psychotherapist. And asked, even though in the, in the, in the Dharma, well, there isn't this word hope in the way that I just defined, is it right, is it appropriate to take away people's hope? Even though it has desire in it, Yes. Even though it's projecting a positive outcome for the future and there's no guarantee, how should we relate in terms of hope? Hmm. Not an easy question, and as always with the inquiries, when I get the hard questions, I do my very best to avoid answering and hoping that the person doesn't realize. <laughs> so it's another movement and since Dharma teachings are encouraging us to look at the force of the inner life the wanting force, the craving force the must have force the dependency upon result force which causes us and others so much problem socially, politically, personally, globally, environmentally at every level it's all about desire how do we relate wisely to the future? If there is one. And that is an area for reflection. The tendency is with the formation of desire in its movement in the field of time born out of accumulated past projecting itself into the future. And you and I and others may say, there is something that I would like to happen in the future. There is something that I would like to be in the future. I would like to become in the future. I would like to happen in the future. Whether or not we can stop all of that movement totally, you have to see, look at. The point is, when I know I have got a strong interest in the future, is this interest supported with wisdom? Is it going to make any difference to my life if it doesn't happen? This is where the invitation to reflection comes in. When I give consideration to the future, is there a dependency on getting what I want? Is it really going to make a great difference to my life if it doesn't happen? And somewhere in all of this, 
we can find the wisdom through reflection and through meditation and through exploration together which gives one the opportunity to resolve what is past and be clear about it, to resolve and be clear about what is present and resolve and be clear about what may or may not happen in the future. And the one force I want to really notice and look at with care and interest is the force of wanting. One thing I want to take a real interest in is the force of wanting. What goes on when I want? And maybe, maybe, it can transform itself into wise intention, clear action, non-dependency on result, enough spaciousness that if it works out, it's fine, and if it doesn't, it's fine too. Just recently I was looking, I have on my, one of my websites, I can't remember which one, but there's a photograph. And this photograph was taken on the, uh, at the end of the first retreat I ever gave, which was lifetimes ago. On the schedule. On the schedule, that's right. You all know better than I. <laughs> and so it was taken around 1974 in... McLeod Guns, Dharamsala, there. And I'd spent months, months up there with uh, some other uh, monks and lay people and giving some talks, and I was asked to give a 10 day retreat. And it was in a place called Elysium House. And a small retreat, I can't remember how, ma- how many uh, on, on the retreat. And in fact, a few of the f- people in the photograph I still see. Still, still around the Dharma scene. Others, heaven knows where. And sometimes, like in the House to Steal, one person from Germany last year turned up and said, Christopher, I haven't seen you from, since 1974, that first retreat. I said, I have a photograph of that. So in that picture he's like 21 years of age, slim as a pencil, with a big turban on his head. We've all changed. (laughs) Oh, we've all changed. And um, one of the things which I remember about that uh, retreat, it was a kind of rather dramatic entry into the the teaching uh, world that we had a rather violent guy on the retreat who had a history of violence. He'd been in prison with it. And at one point in the retreat, the anger and the aggression had come up so strongly that he'd fallen into this um, situation, which many do, but on a less intense scale, called VV. V vipassana, the other V is villain. In other words, there's somebody on the retreat that one really can't stand. You know, really, get really 
negative. Whatever they do, if they're sitting very still, they're showing off. And if they're moving, they're completely restless and annoying everybody else. Whatever they do, if they eat, eat, eat a lot, they're greedy. If they, if they eat, too, eat too little, they're obviously suppressed, you know, whatever. <laughs> and uh, so, so once one has picked somebody out, so this very angry, violent guy, who had no front teeth, by the way, <laughs> from fighting, got really angry during the retreat and was looking for an axe to hit somebody. <laughs> he came, he told me in one-to-one, he said, he's so angry with this person who's this quiet meditator <laughs> doing his practice, not realising <laughs> what other retreat wants to get an axe to hit him, <laughs> etc. There. And um, anyway, both are still alive. (laughs) (laughs) And what was touching in all of this, the same guy, how things move in life, and and, and rage and anger is one expression of desire. Desire to hurt. Desire to inflict pain. And years later, I'm talking now, right into the 1990s, that I saw this same angry person and we had a community in England and he came to visit the community and he was still dealing with these things and been, I remember been in a car accident and back in prison and in and out of prison etc. And some 15-20 years later had no contact, had seen him, he wrote to me. Right? So he wrote to me. And said he was sorry for everything that happened there and the pressure he put on me and the other people and the community and what happened on the first retreat. And he said, and also Christopher, I do want to apologize because when I came to visit the community, I stole your sleeping bag. <laughs> <laughs> oh great. <laughs> etc. And he said, this is 20 years later, I would like to replace it. (laughs) Etc. And so I wrote to him and said, I'm very happy if you put to send me another sleeping bag, etc. He sent some money or something. More importantly in all of this, that despite desire, anger, thieving, another form of desire, etc. All these man- forms of manifestation of desire that despite all of that, somewhere in all the event taking place, something touched a deep spot. And something rather beautiful. It might take five years, ten years, twenty years to come through. A very touching letter. The person was hardly literate, couldn't write very well, not very well educated and with concern and some apology for all that took place and the wish to, as we say in English, make amends. And the request for to wanting to the person, what is it? He wants to be understood. He doesn't want to think that I or any el- anybody else is holding on to what events that took place. He wants a resolution of it and his writing of the letter 
is the way through its resolution for him. All four noble truths. All four noble truths. Wants to be understood, wants to let go and bring come up to date with the past. <coughs> there. Wants the third noble truth for it to be resolved. And he's written a letter and this is a way for him to resolve it. All four noble truths at work. And that sense of that, that exploration of, of that, it gives a kind of, uh, what do I say, power. It gives us an opportunity to reflect on the really profound, beautiful meaning of the Four Noble Truths. Something that we apply into the daily life there. Not because of a tradition, not because of a book, not because of a guru called the Buddha, because it works. Because we can see directly uh, through our own experience. One of the key features in all of this is, and again, this, the differences in their way of looking, is the great importance of silence. But the teachings give it an extra um, emphasis or dimension called noble silence. And the reason for this is a shift and a change. And it's, it's rather precious and beautiful in the deeper meaning of it. What I mean by that is, you and I can say, Nicole and I would say in this case, um, please observe the silence, please keep the silence. Some respect, it's a kind of rule. It's a kind of uh, agreement, it's a kind, for some it's a kind of vow, it's a commitment or whatever. But Dharma teachings are actually to work outside rules. This is quite often forgotten because of all the monks and rules and probably if you and I wrote out a list of all the things that we agreed to, just as monks in the Theravada tradition will have 227 rules. I'm sure if we went through everything, we could get probably a good list of 227 things. You know, not killing, not stealing, not sexually exploiting, not lying, not using drugs and alcohol, etc., and then all the things with the timetable and the diet and um, not making noise and keeping it simple and then, 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 then. Oh, put everything together you have a long list of rules. Right. So silence could be interpreted or conceived of as a rule which we agree to keep because it gives us support. Not it may be, may come, as it were, across in that way. But it has another significance to it. 
It's not you and I with our mind agreeing to something. It has another significance to it. And a little example of it among the many was um, listening to the music last night. Ordinary mind. Ordinary mind. In the process and the act of uh, listening, as Nicole was reminding will, in its interpretation, will say, there's the music there, and I must say, extraordinary, coming out of that little loudspeaker, it's like sitting in the middle of an orchestra. Extraordinary sound, and uh, it's only up just past half volume. And we've been at f- full volume, they could have listened to it in bomb. <laughs> and um, so there's the called the music is there I am here and there is the gap between me and the music the music is there and I am here it, and that's the construct which seems we have agreed to in the view in the event called listening, there is just music. And this music are sound waves, or even more scientific, sound particles or sound waves, just passing through. It requires for that, those sound waves to be passing through, various supportive conditions. One is called the human being to be conscious of it, in this case. The other is called the technology that's going on. But from the level of the pure experience, it's just passing through. It's passing through the silence. It's a wave passing through the silence. And the wave in the act of the listening that there's a silence all around the wave and the silence is running right through it and noble silence is not a rule it's not a must, I must it is the the knowing of silence and waves are inseparable from each other And what I construct out of that starts to form the duality in which the mind enters into it and it begins to make comment on that event called the music and what is, where it is coming from, what the name of it is, what one thinks about it, how it is, the iPod loudspeaker, how loud it is, how quiet it is. So from this flow of event, the self or the I, the mind, as it must, enters into it and in fixing that music, which is that, and oneself, it makes for the duality. When there's, as we were encouraged, total listening to music, 
In a way, there is no listener and no listened to. It's just Once I confirm it is coming from there, called the loudspeaker, the very moment I confirm that, I confirm I am here. I confirm this to confirm that. My life, so-called my life, is confirmed by what I think is not my life. Strange world. I confirm my mind, myself, my idea, my view, my conception via that piece of music and its interpretation and, and my interpretation of it. Dharma teaching practice, which we, we will always do. Not like we're going to just be living in the wave of music for the rest of our life. Yet there's something in the noble silence and in the real love through the noble silence that allows life to express itself. And even that which, as it were, as it were, comes from me, as it were. It's just another wave. There's no more substance to the wave called Christopher or you. Or, there's no more substance to it than there is substance to that wave of sound flowing through the air. We actually were quite insubstantial. We are just a wave. And waves upon waves upon waves flowing and flowing and flowing and flowing and flowing. Sometimes when we sit or when we stand or when we walk, the eyes are closed. What we experience with the support of the noble silence that this so-called body actually is just vibrations and waves. And when there is so-called contact with the backside with the so-called cushion which is the description. When the attention goes to the experience, who can separate the backside from the cushion? Who can say, this is the backside and this is the cushion? Just close your eyes. Gosh, I can't separate one from the other when I'm actually in contact. Oh. It's just my mind pops in and says, I've got a backside. 
and it's dropped itself on top of the cushion. But when you actually go to the experience, where the hell is the backside and where the hell is the cushion? It's just a way in. Maybe the direct experience is revealing through the noble silence more clearly how life is than my mental construct of it. Oh, my poor mind. It's cheating me. It's misleading me. It's telling me the world is full of things. But I put the attention into the experience and things called backside and cushion, called loudspeaker and ears, don't quite seem authentic. The Buddha was called Sakyamuni. Sakya. Name of the country. German or English. Sakyan. He was a Sakyan. I'm an Englishman, German, etc. Still trying to get over this unfortunate rebirth, but anyway. And the um, and Muni means silent one. It's rather I- ironic for a teacher who would appear there are 5,000 of his discourses recorded I mean that's one hell of a lot of talking I have to say I have uh, more than 2,000 talks on tape or on, 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 on CD I'd have to do a lot more talking to get it up to 5,000 So, and he's good the silent one. So for someone who gave so much teachings from the age of 35 until the age of uh, 80, seems slightly ironic to be known as the silent one. Yet, as today when we had our short yatra in the forest, there was once hundreds of the homeless ones, the wanderers who wandered around North India with the Buddha. They're in the forest. And one of the uh, local landlords went into the forest to uh, see, to find these homeless ones wandering in there. They were meditating. Of course, when they're meditating, they're all totally silent. And you couldn't find them. And then eventually he found them. And he couldn't believe how it could be that hundreds of people could be so still and so silent. The silence doesn't exist by itself. It doesn't have its own existence. Silence is to be known. And the silence confirms the birds in the forest. The birds in the forest confirm the silence. And the rustle of the leaves in the forest confirm the silence. And the silence confirms the rustle of the leaves in the forest. And it's in this love of silence, which has no shape, no form, no colour, no taste, 
Can't, no touch, you can't touch silence. It doesn't belong in the field of the senses and the way. That the scent of the noble silence and the love of it and the sinking deep into it brings the world to life. Brings life to the world. Those who love silence hear the birds, see the colours more clearly, feel the stillness of things, sense the intimacy of things through the silence. I remember once doing a, a retreat, personal retreat, three or four years ago at Gaia House. Went to the forest, forest, this is an exaggeration in England, two or three acres of woods, of trees. <laughs> and stood under the tree just doing standing meditation. Spring, I think it's 6.30 in the morning till 7.30. And while standing under the tree, a deer went by. And it knew there was a stranger in the forest. Good tell you. knew something was different. And it was just like 20 metres away from me. And then, the, 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 all in the space of an hour, and then a fox came by. And then I saw a badger. Yeah. And some of the people in Guy House said to me, I've been walking through those woods, I've never seen any of these things. It's in our silence, in our stillness, nature reveals more. It, when we are transparent, nature comes alive, nature comes out. Because we're not entering into the event. We're transparent, we're silent, we're standing under the tree. This noble silence is precious. Beautiful thing. It's not a rule, it's not a law, it's, it's an element intimately close with nature and it gives us the opportunity to understand how events arise. It's this application, this exploration of the Four Noble Truths. This love of the silence, our capacity to reflect, keeps us extraordinarily alert and interested and awake with life. And then out of this easily comes a rather natural happiness and natural love. And sometimes, you know, we might lose the plot a little bit. We get agitated and we get upset and we're all too human. But the characteristic of those who love silence and exploration is one gets over everything very quickly. We lose our cool, get agitated, get impatient, say the wrong thing. Being human. But the exploration of all of this is that the resolution of it, getting over it, is extremely quick. Seconds. Sometimes you and I, we say something, 
and by the time the word has come out of the mouth we see you, oh, it just says something and it's finished it's out and it's resolved finished and the teachings are pointing to an extraordinary resolution in the problems of life first noble truth to be understood second noble truth to be let go of third noble truth complete resolution fourth noble truth to be developed may all beings live with love may all beings live with awareness may all beings love the intimacy of noble silence and the waves of life I have a quiet minute.